0: People don't realize just how how important walkable environments are, walkable residential areas are to the public, to the health of the public within the community. It's amazing the the one would never have equated the healthiest populations with being in big cities, but they are. And you know, in Chicago and New York and and Mm. cities like that have some of the best health outcomes in in the states it's because the amount of walking they do
1: hello thank you so much for checking out earth care the interview series that's dedicated to understanding the ways we can care for the earth and each other i'm your host sarah christie and i'm on a mission to make climate change an approachable and not so overwhelming conversation for everyone On this podcast, we meet climate heroes, activists, experts, entrepreneurs, and get their take on how we can help save the planet. And during this episode, we're learning how to do that with a deeper understanding of city planning. Kevin Eby is the former Waterloo Director of Community Planning. Now, if you're listening outside of Ontario, Waterloo is a tech hub. It's not out of the ordinary to see maybe a self-driving car there being tested at one of the universities, that also means it's home to a ton of innovative and unique businesses. For example, the Canadian Shield, that started as a small startup solution to the PPE shortage during the pandemic. The company Inksmith used their 3D printers to print medical grade face shields, Well, multiple awards and recognitions later, they're now one of Canada's largest PPE suppliers. Cool, right? Waterloo is also home to the second largest Oktoberfest in the world, where it's very common to see people break it down on the dance floor to the chicken dance. I lived in Kitchener Waterloo for a while, and if it isn't clear yet, I loved it there. And it's located in the heart of southwestern Ontario's Greenbelt, which is really the main focus of today's conversation. Kevin Eby is a founding member of the Alliance for a Livable Ontario, which is a group of over 800 individuals and over 130 groups that want to create a livable province and stop the provincial government from their false claims. So, backstory, Bill 23, or the More Homes Built Faster Act, has opened up 7,400 acres of the greenbelt for housing development. Now, this is despite the government's own task force saying, hey guys, plenty of land available outside of the greenbelt to go and get your build on. Recently, Kevin Eby released a professional report that further confirmed that. Hands off the greenbelt, but how? What is the solution? Gentle density, or gentle intensification, are terms that I had never heard before development on the greenbelt was a thing, so these are strategies that have been proposed as sustainable solutions for city planners. And Kevin Eby played a pivotal role in laying the groundwork for the success of that gentle intensification in Waterloo. What does it mean? How does it benefit the homeowner, the community, and what makes it a sustainable solution? Let's find out. Here it is, my Earthcare conversation with Kevin Eby. Kevin Eby, thank you so much for joining Earthcare to talk gentle intensification or as we've heard it before on Earthcare it was gentle density. Now, if someone's hearing either of those terms for the very first time, how would you define them?
0: I think gentle density is really uh taking a look at how do we increase the number of housing units in the built-up area without the construction of of high rise apartment buildings, uh, filling up corridors or nodes. There's a phenomenal amount of potential for additional housing units, just simply adding one or two units to some of the existing single detached units that are in a community. And and quite frankly, you can do it uh, in many cases without people even realizing, I moved into the house that I'm in now and lived here eight years before I realized that the single detached house across the street was actually a duplex. And uh, I had no idea. So it's a way of increasing the number of, of housing units and, and they tend to be affordable housing units within the built up area. And uh, like I say, it's not the typical intensification or higher density that people are are used to you know, thinking about when, when we all talk intensification. And it's phenomenal the number of additional units that you can potentially add in a community uh, that that are through that type of a process.
1: Right now, through researching this conversation, I've uh, read them as carriage homes, laneway homes, garden suites. When you were laying out the groundwork, when KW when Kitchener Waterloo first started planning to adopt this strategy, what did that look like?
0: I think we recognized the potential uh, for increasing the number of units in the built-up area, and and we recognized that some of it was going to be through high-rise or mid-rise in appropriate locations, but we also understood the need for for change within the the neighbourhoods and the need to start to increase the number of housing units through gentle density, and it's really important uh, as, as we get into it that people understand the need for change and, and you know in what otherwise would be considered stable neighborhoods. and you have to help them connect the dots, uh, you know uh, things like the need uh, for climate change mitigation. These are housing units that can be created with much less impact on the, the environment. Uh, they need to understand that the solution is for them. That a lot of these types of affordable units are the types of things, the types of first units that their kids may live in or, or ultimately end up buying. Or that will allow them to potentially stay in their existing house as they retire and get older by creating an additional unit which generates some income that helps them stay in their existing house. And, and also create a place for a caregiver. So there, there's all kinds of different you know, reasons why, but most importantly was having people understand that intensification is, is not just good for somebody else. It's actually good for them. It's good for their friends. It's good for their family and learning to accept that and, and start to embrace it is really important for a community to do if we're gonna be successful.
1: I wanted to read two stats to kind of dive more into what you had mentioned there, you know, both environmentally and economically. Um, So we can kind of, you know, continue to paint the picture of what this could look like. So the first one is talking about how first time home buyers are being priced out of the market. Like you said, this is talking about first homes for people. Um, But it said the average home prices in Ontario did decrease by 20 percent, but is still now at seven hundred and ninety eight thousand dollars. Like that is that's a very large amount of money for a first time home, you know. So how is this going to provide or would it provide more affordable housing?
0: I think there's a couple aspects to it. Number one is these units are, are uh, quite a bit cheaper to build because they they are built onto existing homes as opposed to you're going out buying a suburban lot and uh, constructing a dwelling that includes full foundations, etc. So you can get a cheaper you can get a housing an additional housing unit built cheaper for that. The other thing and and. It's kind of going away a little bit from the pure housing price. But what people don't really fully appreciate is that affordability is a combination of the house or rent and your transportation costs. And one of the things that we did in Waterloo was we really promoted the development of the ION LRT system. And so if if I can create over time or the community can create over time places where people can live and not have to own an automobile, and and especially not own two automobiles. It's amazing how much that affects their ability to to live in a, a place within the community. the The other aspect of it as well is that you know you're dealing with smaller homes in in accessory units. Most of us don't require three thousand square feet or even 2000 square feet, which is what most of the the typical single detached dwelling units these days, uh, the typical suburban house these days, uh, you know, are. And so it offers up the opportunity for smaller units, one bedroom units, as opposed to twos and threes that you'll get in suburban areas. And, uh, you know, it, it gives the opportunity for as well for for the individual homeowner to become the developer of it uh, instead of them necessarily generating profit off the sale of it. It's, it's rental support, and, and those are the types of units that become or stay affordable over time.
1: The thought of having accessible transit, especially even, I'm just thinking of Toronto right now, how that could benefit so many people because that's even, you know, such a roadblock for so many commuters here.
0: It's a phenomenal amount of money. I remember studies back in the early 2000s that were saying the cost of ownership of an automobile, assuming some reasonable amount of financing to purchase it, is in the range of, it was back then, in the range of $10,000 a year. You own two, that's $20,000 a year. And those are in after-tax income. Right. So when you realize that you know you're talking twenty thousand dollars out of your income is really almost twenty five thousand or or even more. That's a phenomenal amount of of um, money that can be used for other things like kids' university uh, expenses, childcare, uh, vacations, etc. There's there's lots of opportunity uh, to do things and and especially lifestyle changes. If you can reduce down your transportation costs and, uh, you know, accessible, uh, affordable housing through this type of uh, gentle intensification in places where transit is available is perfect for doing that.
1: That also falls under the umbrella of the environmental benefits of gentle intensification, which I want to read this uh, second stat that I came across, which said 43% of Canadians want to buy an eco-friendly home. The rate is higher among millennials at 53%. I know you did touch on some of the benefits earlier throughout this interview, but you know, what did we miss any here uh, when we're talking about the environmental benefits of embracing this idea of gentle intensification?
0: I, I think they, they come into play in a number of ways. They come into play in the form of construction is much more environmentally friendly. You're not building full foundations. You're adding on to existing dwellings. Uh, You're you're in a scenario where you're reducing down the amount of uh, agricultural land that's required by building in and within the already built up areas. And you're building in areas where uh, at least the potential exists that you don't need an automobile. Uh, to to get around in in what uh, planning terms have become 15-minute uh, communities, and and so the the idea is that everything you need within the community you can walk to or or possibly aided by cycling you can get to within 15 minutes, and the the other aspect that I think is really important is not uh, I'm varying a little bit from the environmental aspect. But public health and, and people don't realize just how how important walkable environments are, walkable residential areas are to the public, uh, to the health of the public within the community. It's amazing. The, the One would never have equated the healthiest populations with being in big cities, but they are. And, you know, in Chicago and New York and cities and mm. like that. Have some of the best health outcomes in in the states it's because the amount of walking they do they leave their cars at home they build exercise into their everyday activity instead of going to the gym late at night or early early in the morning so this type of of gentle intensification it it, it you know it checks all the boxes it's it, it's affordable it's environmentally friendly it you know, it helps with uh, public health. It, it creates a community where we can start to provide uh, the type of housing units that our kids require, that seniors require, and, and it just makes it a better place to live.
1: Now, I, I did learn something interesting, and I say interestingly with air quotes because I was reading about Bill 23 again prepping for this conversation and it said that the developers don't have to pay a fee for where they're building when we're talking about all these these homes that they're going to be building that that's kind of been wiped off the table with bill 23 when we're talking about you know if this is a completely new topic to someone where does that money go when a developer pays a fee for building these new homes
0: well development charges are are almost you could say the initiation fee that development pays into uh, uh, the use of the services that are provided by the municipality, things like sewage treatment capacity, water supply, the road out in front of the house, the pipes in the ground, the stormwater management systems, which are so important, especially now as climate change is creating more flooding situations, All of those things have to be paid for by municipalities, and they they represent a significant cost on the price of a house. Uh, In order to, to incentivize, especially individual homeowners, to create additional units, one of the things that has been proposed is that they would waive those types of charges where these types of units are being built. It's positive from an incentive standpoint to possibly move development of those types of units along. It's got a downside as well, because that's not free money. It's it's money that's compensating. We're paying uh, back the municipality for what it's spent to build sewage treatment <laughs> plants and water supply, et cetera. So every time you waive a charge, it's got to be you know, you've got to come up with the money somewhere. And so it's, you know, typically it's tax increases or user rate increases that would need to to occur in order to, uh, you know, provide for these houses with no development charges attached. And that's kind of where, you know, I, I described it as the initiation fee. Once you've paid your development charges, you become part of the tax base, you you have paid your way into using those types of services and the maintenance of them after the fact is paid for through user fees or tax rate increases. So you, you pay the development charges up front once. And that basically, you know, you become part of the, uh, the club, so to speak, in the, the municipal terms, uh, uh, as far as being able to access all the services and uh, uh, ultimately uh, having them available for you for an extended period of time.
1: Interesting. Well, the main reason we're talking about this, you gentle intensification, de- gentle density, is because this has become a hot topic of conversation with uh, our current government, you know, proposing that they're going to be building houses on the Greenbelt. Gentle intensification has been brought up as a sustainable alternative to having to develop on the Greenbelt. Um, and when we were emailing back and forth, you had mentioned. What a city would really need to embrace in order to make this happen. I'm wondering if you can just touch on some of the uh, points that you had provided, you know, what it what would a community really need to embrace in order to make this happen?
0: I think it's education. I, I think people need to understand i I am a firm believer that the public is an awful lot smarter than most of us give them credit for. and and in fact, if you explain to people, the the true benefits the full range of benefits associated with these types of things and as i said earlier especially the fact that those types of benefits uh, accrue to them accrue to their family accrue to their friends the it opens up uh, you know potential opportunities for people that otherwise may not have it and and that becomes really important as we work to intensify not just through gentle intensification but other forms of intensification as well that you know the community needs to to uh, to understand what the benefits are and planners need to do a better job of educating the existing population as to those benefits and that was one of the things in Waterloo that that we were really i think successful at uh, as we started into all this was we really concentrated on getting out into the public, doing hundreds and hundreds of presentations. We used to laugh about the fact, give us three people in a kitchen table and we'd be there. And, and it's through those types of conversations where you both get to listen to people and figure out what their concerns are and also give them information that hopefully resolves those concerns. Or you know, coming out of those conversations, we realized there were maybe adjustments we needed to make as well to how we were moving forward to, to, you know, create a better fit between the new types of housing we needed as a, a maturing community and, uh, you know, the, the people that live there.
1: Based on the timeline you gave me in an email, I think I got to reap the benefits of your hard work in Kitchener-Waterloo. I can't tell you how much I loved my time there. It was very hard to leave and I fully took advantage of all the bike lanes. Um, that made getting around a lot easier while I was in Kitchener-Waterloo. So thank you for all your hard work with that region.
0: I very much appreciate that. And you know, the one thing uh, just I would leave you with is that the, what happened in Waterloo, I think was a little special. Uh, And it was special because there was, uh, number one, Ken Sealing was our regional chair for about 30 years. And so we had continuity in leadership, which was so critical. There was political leadership. The other thing we had was members of the community who became champions, that they came to every council meeting and and spoke passionately about the need for, you know, the types of, of, Uh, housing, support for the LRT, all of these things. Most of them were originally environmentalists, but they recognized that the best way to protect the environment is to grow differently, to grow sustainably from both an environmental and a fiscal uh, perspective. And they came out and that gave cover to the politicians to, to take some bold actions. And, you know, that's what what Waterloo was really good at. And then it, the local staff embraced it. The the staff in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, and the townships embraced what we were attempting to accomplish. And so we had this merger of all kinds of good things coming together. And boy, is it ever, uh, it's changed so much here. And I think changed for the better.
1: Thank you so much for checking out that episode of Earth Care and letting this podcast be a part of your day. Since you made it this far, here's a little sneak peek into the conversation we're having next week. These are some of the
0: biggest uh, supporters of the fossil fuel
1: industry, the biggest enablers of the fossil fuel industry. Truthfully, the fossil fuel industry cannot operate without their support. And we would be on a very, very different path when it comes to climate action without the role of the banks in this. Until then, we can also connect online at EarthCareShow on Instagram and TikTok. Head there to give those accounts a follow. And hey, if you have time, leave a review, message me with a review. I'd love to know what's on your mind, what's been clicking with you, and what topic you'd like to learn more about. You can also write to me on the website, EarthCareShow.com. I'm your host, Sarah Christie, and the goal of this podcast is to get us talking about climate change. So, let's chat.